may be seated. Now, if you want to know where that comes from, um, it is an old uh, prayer out of a Puritan prayer book, but it is actually hijacked uh, out of the Scripture. My, uh, as a matter of fact, turn to John chapter 13. I should have told you that already. And um, so the, uh, the Puritan preachers had a little sign that they would uh, put on their pulpits. And so I had, I had the sign made this week because I wanted to put on my pulpit. And it, sir, it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 21. And that is the aim of all preaching, or should be the aim of all preaching, is for us to see Christ high and lifted up. And I hope that that is what we do this morning. That is our aim, that is our prayer, that is our desire, is for us all to see Jesus. John chapter 13 is where we will begin this upcoming week as we continue through uh, our book called The 52 Greatest Stories of the Bible. And so... um, We land in John chapter 13 through 16. It was my original goal to preach all three chapters this morning, but it is, or four chapters, but it is way too rich and way too dense uh, to attempt uh, such a a feat. And I'm already long-winded as it is, and so that would only exacerbate a problem that, which I currently have. So, I decided that we would just go with the opening 20 verses of John chapter 13. And so if you've arrived there in your copy of the scripture or on your phone or tablet or ever how you're reading God's word this morning, I will be reading out of the ESV uh, version of the scripture. The scripture says this, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to, uh, to, out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I, I've just, I've repeated that verse to myself over and over and over again. In particular, the last part of that verse. And he loved his own until the end. If you need comfort this morning, I don't know if I can give you any more comforting words than that. That Jesus will love his own until the end. He didn't say he loved us till the end because we loved him to the end. He said that he loved us to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. How many of you have ever said, I will never and only to live to... Eat those words.
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put, out, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who, who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And we're going to stop right there at verse 17 this morning. This morning, I want to talk to you about the subject of basin theology. Basin theology. During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers repairing a small defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. Asked why the rider, uh, asked why the rider, he re, uh, retorted with, with great dignity. Sir, I'm a corporal. The stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done, he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come again and help you. Anybody want to guess who it was? General George Washington. That's an impressive example of servant leadership, right? But as impressed as we may be, and definitely as impressed as the men and the soldiers of that day were, trust me, nothing is more impressive in the realm of servant leadership and what it looks like to be a servant than what you and I have just read this morning. If you think that George Washington dismounting his horse to help some of his, uh, uh, to help some of his soldiers complete a task, what about if the God of the universe bent down and washed your feet? As I said this morning, I want to talk to you about basin theology. What happens when love goes low? The clock is ticking. It's T minus 15 hours to the cross. That's where we stand at this moment in human history and in the life of Jesus. It is the last night with his friends. One last chance to talk to them about what matters most. What they could not and what they could not afford to forget. How many of y'all know that the disciples are quite forgetful? <laughs> How many of you know that you're quite forgetful? How many of you know that you'll forget much of what I say by the time you walk out the doors this morning? Let's just be honest. Somebody will say, well, what did the preacher preach on this morning? Well, it was a good sermon. I know that's what y'all say, right? It was a good one. Probably his best. Well, what was it about? 
I can't remember. That's why it was one of his best. How could he take the wisdom of the ages, filter through all the teaching, all the conversation, all the activities, and distill it down to one final lesson? They had given up everything to follow him for the last three years, and now the end was rapidly approaching. It's only a matter of hours. And on top of it all, they had been arguing all day about which of them was the greatest. Now, that's something that John's gospel leaves out, but Luke's gospel uh, clues us into that leading up to this moment, there was this ongoing argument between the disciples about who was going to be the greatest. Maybe none of this stuff was sinking in at all. I mean, can you imagine, have you ever been around your children, or maybe you're a teacher, or an instructor, or an educator of some sort, or maybe on your job you're a trainer, and you've been preaching something, teaching something, training something for some time, and then you overhear a discussion amongst your co-workers, employees, students, and you're like, did they just really say that? I mean, how many times have I told them that? How many meetings have we had? How many instructions have we had? Uh, How much class time have we taken to talk about this matter? And they act like they've never heard it before. Now, multiply that. Here is Jesus who has chosen these 12 men, 11 who are legit, one who's illegitimate, and he is going to entrust them with the hope of the world. And here they are, bickering and arguing about probably the main message that Jesus has been teaching the entirety of his ministry. How would you respond? How would you act? What would you do in that moment? They were ready to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. Because that's the argument, right? Who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's going to be top dog in the kingdom? They were ready to fight for a position, a throne, but they were not ready to fight for the towel. While the disciples are fighting over, over who gets to sit where, Jesus silently picks up a towel and a bowl of water. Before anyone's aware of what's happening, the first sandals are off. The king... The one whom King Uzziah saw sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, is now bowing down. The one who stood on nothing and spoke everything into existence picks up a basin. The one who holds everything together is picking up a towel. Never has anyone so high ever stooped so low. Do you remember that verse? And we're going to get to it in in a moment. But that in Philippians where it says, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know what precedes that? It's where Paul talks about that Christ took on the form of humanity, humbled himself, came, and served others. You see, the reason why Jesus' name is exalted so high is because he humbled himself so low. You see, the reason why people will bow to Jesus one day is because Jesus was not afraid to bow himself. His humility granted him the greatest exaltation. That's why Peter would tell us that God resists the proud, but does what? 
but he lifts up or exalts the humble. It was his act of servitude that arrested their attention. This this text, because of our culture, doesn't land on us as forcibly as it did in Jesus' day. We live in a culture that has, listen, created an $8.5 billion industry around the beautification of feet. Makes me want to go out and start a nail salon or something. $8.5 billion are spent on toes and feet every year. In Jesus' day, it was a job primarily for Gentile slaves. The duty was so menial, so low, that Jews would not allow their Jewish slaves to perform such an act. It was a task of humiliation. However, in our culture, it's a job of respectability, requiring education and certification. So I understand when we read such a passage and we don't think of it as being as breathtaking and as awe-inspiring as this text really is. Knowing we have a substantial obstacle blocking our full understanding and comprehension of this text, let's ask our great teacher and illuminator to give us ears to hear and a spiritual mind to understand and a heart. Listen, this is what we're going to need this morning. We're going to be able to hear this message. We're going to be able to comprehend this message. But our problem is going to be obedience to this message. And remember what James told us last week. Do not be a hearer of the word only, and so deceive yourself. This morning, if you hear this message, and you do not obey this message, you have done nothing more than practice self-deception. We must obey. We must obey. Question number one. There's three questions to answer this morning. Question number one is this. Why is this story in our Bible? Why is this story in our Bible? Well, this story exists because Jesus' primary message is still not being exercised. The primary primary message of Jesus is still not being exercised. You see, instead of fighting over who was going to wash feet, they were fervently fashioning their argument for superiority. Look at Luke. 22, 24 on the screen. This is, this, is, this is what's leading up to this moment. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Their three years with the Savior, and they still fail to understand his message. A message that he not only gave verbal instruction, but a visual illustration of. How about Matthew 23, 11 through 12? We read this last week in our reading. The greatest among you shall be a what? A servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or how about Matthew 20, 26 through 28? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, watch, purpose statement, as he came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus could have, in this moment, washed his hands of the disciples, 
right? He could have said, enough is enough. I've tried. I've put my heart, my soul, all of my energy, all of my effort, my best teaching uh, techniques I have employed. I have done everything that I know to do. And they still don't get it. Therefore, I'm just going to, I'm tired. I'm, I'm giving up on them. There are a bunch of self-centered prima donnas. They really don't love me. All they want is they want power and prestige and prominence. His love remained faithful even when their love faltered. Hmm. How many of you have a faltering love at times for Jesus? Aren't you glad that he loved his own until the end? Hey, they hadn't, I mean, they're they're faltering now, but they haven't had their best falter yet. Peter has not denied Christ yet. Uh, They haven't abandoned him in his moment of need yet. They haven't gone to sleep while he is praying yet. And he knows they're going to do this. And he says, I love you. I'm going to love you to the end. So instead of being done with them, instead of washing his hands of them, as it's so easy for us to do with other people, Jesus stoops low and he washes their feet. John chapter 13, verse 1. Look back at it. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What do we see there? This, is the, this story in our Bible is in our Bible to show us the essence of God's love. It shows us the essence of God's love. Now, something that we need to clarify this morning, because there's a lot of people that walk around in the world saying that we're all just God's children. And some of you have heard me say this before, but listen, if we've already admitted to our ability to be forgetful, then we need to be reminded because what is not constantly repeated is quickly forgotten. Not, we are not all God's children. Only the people that have been born again, saved by grace through faith, washed in the blood, those are the only people that are God's children. Now, we're all God's creation. So what is the essence of God's love? And we need to make this clear distinction this morning. And it is this. God has a special love for his children. It says it in the text. It says, he, having loved his what? Own who were in the world. God has a special love for his children. I have two girls of whom I love. And many of you here have your children with you in church this morning of which I love. But I promise you, I do not love your kids the same way I love my kids. Nor do you love my kids the same way you love your kids. God has a special love for his children. God has a standard love for his creation. So a special love for his children, a standard love for his creation. Does God love everyone? Yes, he does. Does God love Christians more than he loves non-Christians? No. Does God love Christians to a different extent than he loves non-Christians? Yes. God loves everyone equally in that he is merciful to all. God has a unique relationship with Christians in that only Christians have his eternal grace and mercy and the promise of his forever love in heaven. 
The unconditional love God has for everyone should bring us to faith in him. Receiving in thankfulness the great conditional love he grants all those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord. So we see that God, we see the, the essence of God's love. He has a standard love for the creation, and he has a special love for his children. This story also is in our Bible to show us the embodiment of ministry. He wants to show us what ministry really looks like. If somebody asks Jesus, Jesus, illustrate for me what it looks like to do ministry, this is his answer. In 1984, Foreigner had a hit song on their album, Agent Provocateur. I like to say that, provocateur. Not a, really a good word, but <clears throat> I like to say it anyway. And on that album, they had this hit song that people know. It's an anthem. Do you remember the name of the song? I want to know what love is. Do you know the next line? I want you to show me. The entirety of Jesus' ministry can be summarized in this action. Love is a verb. It's a verb. It's an action verb. It's doing something, not merely a verbalization. Love is a verb, but not merely a verbalization. That's why we said last week, you can talk about love all that you want to, but if your life does not match up to your lips, Jesus says that you're a liar. Jesus is not listening to what you say. He is watching what you do. Jesus cares more about what you do than he is, than he does about what you say as it pertains to love. Jesus' life is marked by verbs. It's just one verb after another after another. Think about this verse, John 21, 25. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Did you get that? There are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, here's the thing. It didn't say, uh, now there are also other things that Jesus said, right? He didn't say that. It said there are many other things that Jesus did and had all of those things that he did been written down, the books of the world cannot contain it. That's even more validity this morning that what matters most is what we are doing more than what we are saying. That is not to say that, it, that we should not verbalize but what it is saying is, make sure that what you are going to say verbally is first seen visibly. Did you get that? Make sure that what you are going to say verbally can be first seen visibly. It, it can kind of work like this. You're, you're out, you're serving, you're, 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 uh, uh, you're serving other people. And somebody would ask you, why are you doing this? And then you can verbalize the inspiration behind your action. However, this occasion, because of its time frame, needed an extreme 
visualization of his verbalization. Jesus' actions was a visual answer to their debate. Jesus is about to show them, you want to know who's going to be greatest? I'm about to show you who's going to be greatest. Jesus isn't against greatness. Jesus is against greed. Jesus isn't against exaltation, just ego. Jesus teaches that only those who expend themselves for others will be exalted. True love, real love, is rooted in humility. You might want to write this down. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Humility is thinking of yourself less, while humiliation is thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humiliation is just thinking of yourself like, well, I'm no good. I I can't be used. I'm, I'm pitiful. I'm this. I'm that. That's humiliation. Humility is quit thinking about you all the time. That's what I love about Jesus. He's constantly thinking about others. This story is in our Bible to give us an example of his message, of his message. What is his message? It demonstrates how we are to serve. I mean, it not only demonstrates how we are to serve, but how we are saved. Not only demonstrates how we are to serve, but how we are saved. There's an undeniable connection between service and salvation. Can I say that to you again? There's an undeniable connection between service and salvation. Jesus said back in Matthew 20, 28, Son of man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45 gives those exact words. Matthew and Mark record the instruction. But what does John do? He gives us the illustration. We don't, need, we don't serve. Listen, we don't serve to be saved. We serve because we are saved. We are saved to serve, not saved by serving. Look at how the text uses his service to demonstrate our salvation. We are, listen, write this down. This is one of those blanks. We are completely saved by his sacrifice. We are complete. The reason why we can serve is we are completely saved by his sacrifice. Isn't that what he told him in verse 4? It says he rose from supper. Uh, Excuse me, not in verse 4. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, uh, up in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Completely clean. Now notice what Jesus does in verse 4. Jesus does what? He lays aside his outer garment. Now watch this. John 10, 18, that that phrase laid aside is used there. It says, no one takes, talking about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Listen, Jesus, nobody took his life. He laid it down. Listen, nobody is forcing Jesus to serve. He is serving of his own desire. He's not being coerced into this. Jesus is doing this of his own volition. 
What Jesus is doing is literally sucking the breath out of the disciples. This is breathtaking. What is Jesus doing? When he girds himself, this is a visual illustration of the Savior becoming a servant. Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this. Beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though was in the form of God, did not account quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. When Paul wrote that, listen, what he is doing is he is pointing us back to this moment in, uh, in history. He is pointing us back to this is Jesus who emptied himself, who took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, which at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Look back to verses 8, 9, and 10 real quick. Peter said... What? You will never wash my feet. Then the Lord said, if I don't wash, you have no share with me. And then Peter said, Lord, not my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. Now watch, this is, you, you've got to get this this morning. This is absolutely imperative this morning. When Jesus says to him, you need your feet washed, but you don't need a bath, there's something going on here. The word for bathe is the word luo. That's the Greek word, luo, which means the washing of the whole body. You see, Christ bathes us completely at conversion. There's no need for double dipping. Jesus is straightening out Peter's theology. Jesus is reminding Peter that his, listen, his justification, I'm going to use some church words here, is a one-time permanent act. All of his sins are completely forgiven. Remember, justification is a legal term which simply declares that the perfect life of Christ has now been given to us. We are justified. You, you want a definition for it? The word defines itself. Just as if we had never sinned. Just as if we had never sinned. This is why Jesus says to you, says to Peter and to you and I who are Christians, you are completely clean. Jesus' washing of their feet, listen, is an example of sanctification. He says, you're justified, Peter. You're absolutely clean all over. There is no need for you to be washed again. You are saved. It's a one-time act. I have declared you righteous and sinless before God. Your position before God is absolutely perfect and without sin, but your practice still has sin in it. So we are completely saved by a sacrifice, but look, we are continually saved by a sacrifice. I've always tried to teach you that there are verbs in salvation. We are saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Sanctification is that middle part where we are being saved. We were saved, clean, luo, from what? From the penalty of sin. That means we will not be judged and sent to hell. But listen, 
When, he, when we are being continually saved by a sacrifice, that is, we are now being saved from the presence of sin. How many of us have sinned this morning? How many of you came in here with dirty feet, spiritually speaking? Justification is a one-time act, legal declaration by the judge. Once a verdict is rendered spiritually, it cannot be overturned. God doesn't change his mind. Justification also places us... Uh, places on us an identity. Now watch this. You're sinless if you're, if you're saved. I didn't say that you don't sin. I said you're sinless in position before the Father, the judge. Sanctification is the process by which God works out our justification. That means we start becoming more and more like what we really are. Justification always precedes salvation. We must first be justified and so that we can be sanctified. We are completely clean because we have been bathed in Christ's righteousness, but we need continual, continual washing for our relationship with Christ. Jesus is teaching us that even after we're saved, a Christian can still sin and will sin. Those who have been completely bathed still need what? What's the word he used? Does he use the word bathe or does he use the word wash? Wash. Wash is the Greek word nipto, which just means to clean your feet, to, to sponge the dirt off your feet. As we walk in this world, we are soiled by sin. John would go on to explain what Jesus means when he says what? In 1 John 1, 9, he explains what Jesus means about that we just need our feet washed. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need daily washing, but we only need to be bathed one time. All right, let's bring this sermon to a close. We need to ask two questions here at the end, okay? They're self-explanatory. I, I have very little to say about these. What does this event, event teach us? Well, it teaches us that servanthood is expected. Servanthood is expected. Listen, you cannot be a Christian and not be a servant. You cannot be a Christian and not be a servant. Look at verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Listen, that doesn't mean that we practice foot washing. That's not, a, that's not supposed to be a ceremony in the church. It's just an attitude amongst Christians. Jesus was able to perform this act of utter humility because... Now listen, uh, I think this... Yeah, it's on the screen. Look at that on the screen. Because for us, here's where, here's where our struggle is. Our struggle is we know we ought to serve, but our struggle is in the serving, right? How many of you have... Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have got into the servant business and you have been taken advantage of? How many of you have ever gotten a servant business and got abused by other people? Do not forget this fact, that the very man that is about to trade Jesus for money gets his feet washed. 
Before Jesus says, what you do, go do quickly, what does Jesus do? He washes the feet of Judas. So how can Jesus pull off such servanthood? And that's what you need to write down. Jesus was able to perform this act of utter humility. Why? Because of his keen understanding of who he was, where he came from, and where he was going. And I didn't make that up. Just write John 13, 3, because that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, I know, where I, I know who I am, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going back to. Isn't that what it says? Knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So, Mark, go back to that previous slide, because, I mean, I, I pro if you don't write anything else down, I want you to write that down, because you're going to need that in order to serve. Because if you don't know whose you are, you'll never be able to serve. You'll never be able to serve with the right attitude. You'll never be able to serve with any endurance. And if you don't know where you're going, you won't be able to do it. You've got to know where you came, who you are, where you came from, and where you're going. Who am I? Child of God. Where did that come from? Came from heaven. Wasn't, wasn't in me. Not my natural disposition. I'm selfish by nature. And where am I going? I'm going to a place of forever service. Y'all know that's what heaven's about, right? You're not going to be floating around, playing on a harp, singing songs all day long. You'll be whistling while you work. Read your Bible. There's work to be done in heaven. There's serving to be done in heaven. Uh, it's been asked to me about the, the great feast in heaven. Jesus girds himself and serves us. Miss Arlene's always asked me, who's going to clean the table? I said, well, whoever does it will do it with the best attitude they've ever had. And they won't say, I can't believe I got to clean the table. What are these other people doing? Aren't they supposed to be doing something up here? How come I get stuck with the menial task of cleaning the table? Whoever cleans the table will be singing to the top of their lungs and doing it to the glory of God and with the fullness of joy in God. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what people who have met the servant of all servants do. All right, I got I to speed up. Servanthood exemplifies Christ. Jesus says, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Does there need to be any explanation? When you serve, you show other people Christ. You, you say, I just want people to see Jesus in me. Then get down and go low so that people can see Christ. You know why people can't see Christ in us? Because we're too high. We're not low enough. The motto of the Prince of Wales is this, I serve. The Prince of Wales, that's his motto, I serve. What should we do? If the, if, 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 if the royalty can have such a motto, Jesus has such a motto, then we should as well. Servanthood expresses Christ's love to the world. Jesus is going to go down in verse 34 and 35, and he said, The world will know that you are my disciples because you have loved one another. So what does Jesus start? He says, look, if the world is going to know that you're a Christian, then it doesn't start with us loving the world. It starts with us loving each other. Servanthood brings enjoyment. 
Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The aim of servanthood is joy, not justification. What am I saying? Is that we don't serve to be right with God. That's justification. We serve because we've been justified. And in our serving, we find joy. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you who do them. That word blessed is joy, happy, full. Final question. One final question. How do we live this life? How do we live this life? Number one, look to Jesus. You got to look at him and you got to watch him and you got to see how he acts within the, within the scriptures. Look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so cloud, a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. What? Looking to Jesus, the author, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Look to Jesus. He's the greatest servant, and we see the joy that he has. And in looking at him, we will see that there's joy in our service. Second, long to be like Jesus. Look to Jesus, but long to be like him. Paul gives us an imperative in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, "Be be therefore imitators of God. That's what we should be. You know what proceeds that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians? It's how we are saved. And because we are saved, now we are to imitate Christ. Jesus says, if you want to imitate me, be a servant. Put others ahead of yourself. Be last, not first. Be the bottom, not the top. Go low for love. And the other thing about longing to be like Jesus is just pray and ask Christ to help you to want to be like him. Incline my heart, O God. And then lastly, learn from Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Learn from Jesus. You got four gospels filled with Jesus from which you can learn from. Now listen, this is how we're going to close this morning. Everyone in this room will pick up a basin in their life. Pilate picked up his basin to avoid his rightful responsibility. It's going to happen in a few chapters. Pilate's going to take a basin, he's going to wash his hands, and he's going to remove himself of his responsibility, of his rightful responsibility. Jesus picked up his basin to take on his responsibility, that of, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So here's my question to us today. Who are you and I most like? Who are we most like? Who do you most identify with this morning? But let me ask you this question. Who do you most want to be like? Who do you want to be like? If you have never been bathed by Christ, then you've got to start with being bathed. You need to confess your sin and ask Christ to save you from your sin and to make you his child because all you are right now is a creation of God. If you've already been bathed by Christ, do you need washing this morning? Did you come in here with dirty feet and you need Christ to wash your feet? You need to confess your sin before him. If you have been washed and are ready to pick up the towel that is being passed to you this morning, are you ready to pick up the towel that is being passed to you this morning? 
So here's the way the, the, the invitation response time is going to work. At the tables, our communion. Okay, got a table there, got a table there. I want to invite you this morning, if you're a Christian, to renew through repentance your commitment to pick up your towel and to be a servant. And if you're ready to do that, I'm not telling you you must do that. I'm saying if you're ready to do that this morning, then here's what you do. You confess that sin. You need to get your feet washed. And once you have your feet washed, then you can go to the right or the left, and you can take of the bread and the juice. And then once you've done that, if you're committing this morning to say, you know what, I'm renewing my commitment to picking up the towel and becoming a servant, on the end of the table is a little lapel pin that looks something like this. It is a bowl with water and a towel draped over it. Now, this has no magical power in it whatsoever. All right, don't think, oh, I'm going to get one of those, and it's just going to turn me into the greatest servant that there's ever lived because I'm wearing my pen. No. Does, does, does wearing a wedding ring make you a, a, a better spouse? No. But what is it there for? It is, a, it is a reminder of the kind of spouse that you should be. What does this little piece of metal do? I'm going to invite you to take one and put it on and not wear it to church on Sunday, but to wear it every day of the week to remind yourself on your job, at your school, when you're around other people, that, hey, you know what I'm supposed to do? What my calling is? Do I, want, do I want people to see Jesus and know Jesus and know that the love of Jesus is real? Then that pen is always a reminder to you and for you of what you should be. It can be very powerful. i end with this story. Have, you guys may have seen this story on, on TV. There was a little kid down in Florida. They had school spirit day. He wasn't an Alabama fan, and he wasn't an Auburn fan. I hate that. But he was a Tennessee fan out of all people to be a fan of. And there's something that Albies and Bammers can get in agreement with. We all don't like Tennessee. But this kid was a Tennessee fan. But he, he came from a poor family, and they couldn't, he couldn't afford to go out and get a Tennessee T-shirt to wear to school. Have y'all seen this story? And so he takes a shirt, and he draws this hand-sketched, pitiful little drawing. And it says, U of T. And he wears it to school, and all the mean bully kids at school make fun of him, tell him how terrible it is, how ridiculous he is, and they make fun of him. Well, the University of Tennessee got a hold of it, and so I got to give them respect for this. And they print up a bunch of orange T-shirts, and they take his drawing, and they put it on their T-shirt. And as of Saturday, they had sold almost 20,000 of those T-shirts. For what? They're raising money. They give this kid a four-year scholarship when he gets ready to go to college and go to UT at, at no charge. But what's the T-shirt all about? Why did they print the T-shirt? Why am I asking you, pick this up and put this on, put this on you? For nothing more than a reminder of what we should not be because of what we are.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, if there's one, two, three, I don't know, in this room that they don't, they've never been bathed. They've never been cleansed of their sins. And I pray in these moments ahead that you would just open up their eyes and their heart and their mouth to confess their sin before you, confess that they're a sinner, and then with that same mouth say, Lord, I believe you, believe in you. Will you come and save me from my sin and myself and make me your child? But Father, for those who have bathed this morning, we, we must confess that we come in with dirty feet. Will you bring us low so that we can have our feet washed? And then will you take us to your table so that we can be reminded of what you, how you have served us? And then, Father, will you renew our commitment to picking up the towel and being people of the towel so that other people might come to know you? In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing. The altar's open. The table is ready at any time for you to go to.